It's Monday, March 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The House has passed President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, and it will now head to the Senate. While it will most likely pass there, it will be losing a provision that would have raised the federal minimum wage to $15. President Trump was also in the spotlight speaking at CPAC, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is facing an investigation after a second former staffer accused him of sexual harassment. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us to break it all down. Next, pandemic numbers have been trending in the right direction and the vaccine rollout has been ramping up. But when can we all get back to normal? The next few months will look just as they have been, but the summer could be the closest to normal that we have seen in a long time. Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, previews what the next few seasons might look like on a road back to pre-pandemic normalcy. Finally, some estimates say that we could face a shortage of doctors in the next decade, but right now, there are thousands of doctors that can't get a job. Medical schools are producing more graduates, but residency programs haven't kept up with matching doctors. Part of the problem is matching those who went to medical school abroad. Emma Goldberg, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for why many young doctors are in debt and unmatched with residency programs. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. On this vote, the yeas are 219, the nays are 212. The bill is passed. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. The House has approved President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. The vote was really close. It was 219 to 212. We already know the margins in the House and obviously in the Senate is even slimmer. Out of this bill, we're going to get $1,400 direct payments to Americans, $400 in extra unemployment benefits, and then billions of dollars to help distribute vaccines and, and support schools and local governments. What is the next step for this bill? Obviously, it goes to the Senate. Uh, what's going to look like there? Right. So this bill just barely passed the House at two o'clock in the morning on Friday, on Saturday morning. So all the theater they could muster for something that we knew was going to happen. But you're right. The bill heads to the Senate now. We expect all 50 Democrats and none of the Republicans to vote for the bill. And we expect to have to see Vice President Kamala Harris come in. One of the big differences that's going to happen in the Senate compared to the House is the House version includes raising the federal minimum wage to $15. And it's unlikely to remain in the Senate. They don't have the votes to overcome sort of a lot of really complicated Senate rules that have allowed them to pass this bill without triggering the filibuster, which would need Republican support. But to do that, they can't do the minimum wage in the same bill. The president even spoke out. He said, you know, he's disappointed that it's not going to make it into the bill possibly, but this will probably come up in some other form or fashion pretty soon, I'm assuming. Yeah, and we see some Republicans support for a smaller increase. So two Republicans, Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton, have filed a bill that would raise the minimum wage to $11. Some of the more liberal Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said that that just wasn't enough for them. They needed to come to $15. But I would expect to hear negotiations even after this bill passes to try to find some increase that they can all agree on. This weekend, the Conservative Political Action Conference was also taking place. It's called CPAC for short. A lot of talk about the election still, uh, you know, the future of the party going forward. President Trump, in prepared remarks, really making it clear that he is going to maintain his hold on the GOP 
talked about how the journey is far from over and just talking about the future of, uh, of America and, and the future of the movement. That's right. So CPAC uh, has often been a gathering of conservative activists, the party's most strident and involved people that go out and, and really volunteer and work on the ground. And in the last four years, it's really become the Trump show. It was a, a bit comically this time. Uh, somebody brought a, a gold uh, <laughs> Trump statue that, that was getting wheeled around. People were taking photos of that got lots of mocking on the Internet. But you're right. It concluded with these remarks from President Trump. Um, and really, you know, his presence there is all we need to know that he thinks he's still going to be involved. We don't know if he's running it yet in, in 2024, but we do know that he is going to be pushing the party to stay with him. And I think we saw just how much time they spent Friday, Saturday of this convention talking about November, the past election, continuing to spread the lie that it was a, a stolen election. This is not something they're willing to let go. And it seems to be something they think is a bit of a rallying cry going forward. The uh, theme of it was America uncancelled, you know, a knock to the cancel culture thing. And uh, all a lot of the attention is going to be put on the midterms, obviously rebuilding the Republican Party uh, trying to take back the House and the Senate. So that's uh, what to expect from there. And and then finally, Ginger, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, is in some hot water uh, after a second staffer alleged sexual harassment allegations. Um, there's going to be an investigation. Uh, Cuomo said that the New York Attorney General and the chief judges are going to determine who will look into it, who will lead the inquiry against him uh, in this whole matter. So what are we going to expect on this? Yeah, this has become quite the issue in New York in the past few days. As you said, a second former staffer of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo coming out to say that he sexually harassed them. These two allegations are pretty strong. These women have said on the record with their names. They've identified themselves. And so he has called for this investigation. There was some criticism that it needed to be people who were removed from him politically, removed from his appointment, that they wouldn't have their sort of political futures entwined with this. Um, and so what it seems to be is that, that the attorney general and the head of the courts there in New York are going to select a politically unaffiliated lawyer in private practice to conduct this investigation. But I think we're just beginning to see what the political fallout of this is going to be. Uh, and Democrats have handled these types of accusations against their own very differently than Republicans. I think we're going to see an increasing call among Democrats that there should be some type of repercussions for Cuomo and that, that these women's accusations should be believed and acted upon. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Once we get into April, I hope that a lot of people will have been vaccinated. The UK variant will not be dominating us in the same way. And at that point, I think we can really start making some decisions about relaxing a lot of these restrictions. Joining us now is Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Joe. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We've been going through this pandemic for a long time now. Everybody is ready for things to get back to normal Unfortunately, those answers are not always very clear. You know, what is normal now after this? We can point out a timeline and uh, hope for the best that it will follow that way. But, you know, there's a lot of variables that come into play. Joe, you spoke to a few experts. You kind of uh, sketched out a timeline, reading some of the tea leaves, seeing what life will be like over the next year or so and beyond that. And you broke things up by seasons, which I loved how you did that. So let's talk about 
the likely timeline for how things will return to normal. And let's start off with the next uh, season that we're ready to go through, March to May, spring 2021. What are we looking at? So I think spring 2021 looks a lot like what people have been doing for the past year. Of course, people have been doing all sorts of different things. Some people have been going to work. Some people have been working from home. Some people have been dining out. Some people have been eating in every night. But whatever it is that people have been doing, I think we can expect for them to have to do more of it uh, for the next couple months. The big question mark that will determine a lot of how cautious people will need to be in these coming months is what happens with the variants that we've heard so much about. We don't really know how much damage they'll do, but they could end up circulating quite a bit and doing a lot of damage. They could also end up not playing much of a factor. So that's kind of the thing that we're looking out for on the scale of the next couple months. But in terms of daily life, daily life looks pretty similar to what it's been. Summer 2021, what are we looking at? I have to say, I've done a lot of interviews over the course of this pandemic with experts wondering what they're thinking about. And I came away from these so much more optimistic and even a bit surprised after these interviews that I did. Summer, they were saying, really should be great. They widely expect things to just look so much better in a lot of different dimensions. A lot of the things that we've not been able to do, like have friends and family over indoors or dine inside restaurants safely, all these things that a lot of people have hesitated to do should become much, much safer. And that includes the whole range of things like going into work and having people be in person at schools. Whether all of those things will phase in at once is probably not going to happen, but summer just should look a lot better in a lot of ways, in a way that for me as somebody who's been reporting on this stuff for a year now, it just is so much more encouraging than it has been. Fall of 2021 and winter 2022, you know, the beginning of the year, what are we looking at there? Because the concern also is, you know, with the colder months, we see an increase in, in flu cases. Obviously, other respiratory things, COVID will be among them. You know, we'll really see kind of what these variants that we've been really worried about, how much more transmissible they'll be when it gets colder again. This is one of the things that I think people might struggle to wrap their minds around. I certainly did as I thought about it. There is a chance that we have a fantastic summer, as I've just described, and at the same time, fall and winter and the colder months end up being not so great. The experts that I spoke with generally expect there to be some sort of uptick in cases and deaths in the colder months. The big question is how much that would be. There's a chance that it really is quite small in which case we get to start reintroducing things like concerts and other things that would represent sort of full quote-unquote normalcy. There's also a chance, as you noted, that the variants end up doing something weird and unexpected. That seems like a less likely possibility, but I would say in general that even if summer is excellent, there is this sort of chance that the fall and winter are not so great and represent a backslide. And then finally, spring, summer 2022. So really a whole other year out will be kind of back to that quote unquote normal. You know, what is going to be normal after the pandemic? It's still yet to be seen, but that's when we'll be a lot looser with our mask wearing and our social distancing. You know, we'll be in the habit now of being with family and friends again. So that's kind of the timeline for this to really resolve itself, we hope. Yeah, exactly. I think this is where... If we're making predictions, this is where we start to use the words maybe or probably a lot less. The spring and summer of 2022, once it starts getting warm next year, I think that's when people widely expect life to be very, very, very similar to what it used to be just in terms of what we're able to do. Obviously, the world will be so much different in so many other ways, but it definitely looks 
very good at that point. I'm so hopeful. I saw the article and I was like, oh, right away, I got. I have to read this because this is what everybody wants to know. When is it going to go back to normal? I'm hopeful that this timeline would work, hopefully even a little quicker than that. But these are all the things we have to work towards and get those vaccines, continue the mask wearing, social distancing, so we can get to that point. It's so important right now. But Joe Pinsker, staff writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm right there hoping with you too. She had so little money in her bank account. She had defaulted on a loan. And yet the minute her stimulus check reached her bank account last spring, she booked a ticket to New York. And this was in April when the pandemic was really raging here in New York. And she showed up to volunteer at a hospital in Jamaica, Queens. Joining us now is Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thank you so much for having me on. We've been hearing a lot of stories about how in about 10 to 12 years time, we might be in for a doctor shortage. And right now, uh, the latest story that you wrote, Emma, is about how medical schools are producing more graduates, but the residency programs, that kind of final step before people can really start their careers, those programs haven't kept up. And there's a lot of unmatched doctors out there that can't do their residency. They can't really start working. And a lot of this has to do with uh, maybe people that have gone to medical school outside of the country. Emma, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with this. This is one of those stories that some doctors approached me wanting to tell me about their experiences with struggling to find work. And the more I learned about these individuals, the more I realized how systemic these problems they were confronting were. So I think the reality is that when people go into medical school, whether it's in the U.S. or abroad, they take on a lot of debt because they expect that after all the years of studying, they go through all the years of training, they'll be able to get pretty high paying work. So most students graduate from medical school, the average student with around $200,000 of debt. And that tends to work out if you can get through residency and then go on to becoming a full-on physician where you might make around $200,000 a year. So you can, you can pay off those loans. But if you aren't able to proceed down your training path and match into a residency and then get full-time work, then those loans become just more and more difficult to pay off as the years go on. Right. I mean, it can be very tough. As you mentioned, uh, the average is about $200,000 of debt. And a lot of these hospital residency programs use a software program. It's called the Electronic Residency Application Service. And what it does is it helps filter out applicants. And some of these people that run these residency programs have said, hey, when we're getting thousands of applications, we can't go through all of them. So we'll use these programs. But what happens, as you mentioned, a lot of times international students, they'll either get put to the bottom of the list, you know, they'll just get rejected. And therein lies one of the big problems. There's a couple of problems within that. One is that the residency program directors who I spoke with are getting sort of slammed. They're getting hundreds, even thousands of applications for just a handful of spots. And there is data that shows the number of residencies that each medical student is applying to has gone up in recent years. Some of the medical students I spoke to are applying to as many as 75 residencies, 150 residencies. So that is a real burden on the residency program directors who have to sift through all of those applications. The other challenge is that some students decide to apply to medical school abroad. And they can do that for all different reasons. Sometimes the schools abroad have a little bit less of a rigorous application process or a little bit less of a reliance on test scores. 
But the thing is that not all students applying to medical school realize is that there's a really wide range of schools abroad in terms of their quality and their rigor. So some are really excellent schools that will prepare you to match into American residencies. Others are not. We can see in data from the residency matching process that while around 94% of graduates from American medical schools tend to match, the number coming who match coming out of international schools can be far lower, more around 61% or even lower than that. So going to medical school abroad does not guarantee you a residency spot, and yet you're still taking on all that debt. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really big consideration for a lot of people that are considering going to medical school, I mean, you have to factor that in, you know, if it's going to be so hard to get a residency after, it really might not be worth it. So you might want to stick with something here in the States. And then what do people do when they're in this situation now that they have their degree, basically, they just can't get a residency and, and get that career going? You mentioned in the article, you know, people feel like they're standing on the sidelines and they'll jump at any opportunity to get in the medical field. And in certain states, they offer assistant physician licenses for people who have completed their exams, haven't done residency. Obviously, it's a job, but it's a fraction of the money you'd be making if you were a full-on doctor. It can feel like the options are somewhat limited because no matter what kind of work you pursue, it's difficult to imagine making the money that's needed to pay back your medical school debt. And a lot of these people, particularly the ones who I spoke to, do simply want to use their medical and their clinical skills. They pass their exams. They want to be helpful, particularly when we're in the middle of a medical crisis like the COVID-19 crisis. I was really touched by a number of the unmatched doctors I spoke with who said they felt that they would do anything they could to help in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. One said she had so little money in her bank account, she had defaulted on a loan, and yet the minute her stimulus check reached her bank account last spring, she booked a ticket to New York. And this was in April when the pandemic was really raging here in New York. And she showed up to volunteer at a hospital in Jamaica, Queens. So it was really inspiring to hear from these unmatched doctors that all they want is to help out. All they want is to put their clinical skills to use. One doctor who I spoke with who mentors a lot of these young people told me, she said she feels like these people want to help, but it's like there's a boulder in their path. They just don't know how to proceed. Is there any recourse for these people but to keep applying? There isn't a lot of other options. Um, There aren't a lot of other options open to them. The positive news in light of this story is that in December, actually, Congress did add another 1,000 new residency positions supported by Medicare that will be um, put into place over the next five years. There is also legislation that was introduced in 2019 by Senator Robert Menendez from New Jersey, which would increase the number of Medicare-supported residency positions by even more. It would be by 3,000 per year over a period of five years. So that hasn't yet received a vote, but it would create a significant number of new residency positions. Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>